0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Catherine Boyle, General Catalyst, and Bilal at Lux Capital. Hello, Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for inviting us. So we're here today to talk about deep tech. And first, perhaps we can start by describing what is deep tech? All right, Catherine, oh, gosh. why don't you start off?
1: I feel like we could spend the entire hour <laughs> just debating those yeah. uh, those words, but uh, we have a pretty particular thesis at GC. And we think that deep tech goes into two categories, but it starts with a company that is building a new technology where there's an engineering excellence to what they're building. Like an engineering excellence can actually be the moat. So they're a deeply technical team driven by, by, by technology, but they can build for two buckets. One is they're building for a new enabling technology in which the market will then mature and come out of whatever they are building. And I think Silicon Valley actually likes to invest in, that type of company. This is what we call like the Oculus version, where it's like they're building a new market and it's something that's being kind of thought of by this visionary. But we actually prefer the second, which is building for a very, very old, tired market in which it is highly regulated by government because um, it's been around for a while and because the market size is very large. And so we think of this is Oculus versus SpaceX. Mm-hmm. SpaceX was building for a market that was already mature, already highly regulated, but they were doing it 10x cheaper and 10x faster. Um, and so we actually like to invest in those companies that have a regulatory agency in Washington that are that are watching the technologies. So think aerospace, defense, computational biology, areas where it's clear that there's already a market that's ripe, uh, but that the technology needs to be built.
0: And, and what, why do you like that, those and what, why do you not like the first ones as much?
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there's a couple of reasons. One, I, I do think that regulation is a proxy for market size. It's really hard to build technology. On top of that, if you're trying to time the maturation of a market – that's in some ways miraculous. Like the, there are some people that are very good at that. I know Lux does that often, um, as well as the highly regulated. Uh, but it's just, a, it's an additional layer of, of, of difficulty. But I also think the, the regulatory component lets you look at sales is actually the thing that matters the most. Um, and it, and it looks, makes you look at kind of how are you looking at the founder? How are you looking at the type of company that they're building? And I think that, um, you kind of anchor on different things if you're looking at a highly regulated market versus trying to predict the future.
2: How do you think about it? at looks, Bill. So Catherine did a good job explaining sort of, you know, the various ways in which you can think about deep tech. You know, it's it's a, definitely stuff that is hard to do. It's hard because the technology is hard and hence there are unknowns and unknown unknowns. It sometimes has regulatory barriers and difficulty. It has supply chain complexities. It's value chain com- complex, selling internationally, for example, and so on we like to think of it as uh companies that are solving these hard problems to uh build a lasting business uh a multi-generational business so not a business necessarily built to sell to somebody where there's a time limited uh opportunity you know having done this for 12 years uh one of the lessons i learned early on that becomes more and more real to me as as i keep investing is that investors vcs namely you know like to take one of two kinds of risks in businesses either technical risk or business risk so majority of the vcs are very comfortable taking a business risk but they're not comfortable taking technical risks right so whether you're a consumer investor or enterprise investor a lot of the time it's you know will the will the dog eat the dog food i think uh, you know lux and many others um invest in companies that have high degree of technical complexity but the business risk is fairly low. Not that it ever goes to zero, but you know that there's a market, you know that there's a pain point, but can you solve the problem at the price points in the time period and with a uh, interface that you know people can relate to? Uh, can you do that? And that is very hard to do. Not every entrepreneur has the interest in that, to be honest. The idea of a serial entrepreneur is very rare in the world of deep tech many entrepreneurs we back are passionate visionaries. Often they've worked on this or thought about this for 5, 10, 20 years of their lives. And hence working with those kinds of entrepreneurs sometimes also uh, requires you to have certain capabilities as a fund, as an investor, as an advisor, as a board member to be able to help those companies. So as you're building out a fund, you build certain capabilities of that fund. And uh, working with deep tech entrepreneurs has over the last two decades of being at Lux or being Lux, has forced us to sort of figure out what those capabilities are that we consider really important that we bring to the tables so that these entrepreneurs want to partner with us.
0: And if uh, Catherine describes the two types of, of deep tech companies, and she says she's investing in the the latter kind, highly regulated. Do you invest in both or what subsectors are you most excited? Yeah,
2: regulation is, so yeah, absolutely. We invest in both. So we invest in companies where the technical complexity is very hard, where the solving that technical problem becomes your moat. It could be a biotech company. It could be a brain-machine interface company. It could be autonomous car company. It's just so hard to do. Very few people can do that. So you can practically think of your competitors could be either completely monopolies, right? So you can build monopolies in that space or you know, have enough defensibility in there that you can count your competitors on a single hand. And in other cases, you have regulatory barriers that are just very hard to overcome. And, you know, sometimes you have to create regulations. You know, we have portfolio companies that believe that the market has been stunted because the regulation does not exist. And we need regulation because large corporations will not play in that marketplace until the the uh, the rules of the road are not very clear. So sometimes that is the issue as well. The vagueness and the unknowns are sometimes the enemy of innovation.
0: How would you think about uh, our deep tech request for startups? Where do we want to see more innovation, more people building? Hmm. How how
2: would you think about that? So the most fundamental question we ask ourselves whenever a company comes and talks to us is, is this answering the fundamental question of what sucks? Can we answer that really easily? you know, there's a lot of things that we would like to have in life, right? You know, you and I can sit around, look around this room, and we can come up with 10 business ideas that would make sense. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it sucks. It's a real problem. So that to us is sort of fundamentally important. Are they solving that problem that that really is an important problem will affect a lot of people, or in other words, you know, has a very large market to go after? You know, my hope is, and as I you know, as I see the investments we've made over the last few years, and then where we're spending time, society is changing in very dramatic ways. Technology is becoming deeply embedded in our society. It's not a tool that we sort of use sometimes, and then we sort of put it away. You know, just like nine to five jobs used to be nine to five jobs, and you come home and you had your life. Now that work life balance issue is does that really exist, you know, work is life, life is work, you better make time for both in at the same time, prioritize the right way. Uh, The same thing is happening with technology. Uh, It's becoming deeply embedded in our lives to the extent that you have literally, as I said, brain-machine interfaces, right? You know, people are peering into our intentions and capturing those and affecting, turning those into mechanical motions and so on. Uh, So as that is happening, I, I think we are identifying some very interesting new opportunities in areas, you know, from healthcare and therapeutics. You know, there's a whole area of digital therapeutics, for example, that FDA can actually give you a license to go after to to uh thinking about ethics and automation and jobs and what does that mean for our society so so that whole broad segment is 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 really open and we've barely scratched the surface right now we we think about we talk about automation but you know We don't really automate anything right now. It's a highly manual life that we lead. How would you answer the same question?
1: You know, it's interesting because I have to kind of pull myself back from being thematic. Like I'm just coming, I, I joke that I'm just coming up from this long kind of investment cycle in defense and I'm looking for the next thing. And I'm like, that's actually the wrong way to think about it. I am really all about founder narrative fit. Um, and I think it's incredibly important for deep tech companies specifically uh, because it is such a long journey and because, as Bilal said, it is really, really hard. You are adding, adding extra layers of constraint, tech risk, regulatory risk, things that enterprise companies or consumer companies don't often have to deal with. Um So the founder narrative fit has to be very compelling. And usually the most compelling stories I hear are not things I'm looking for. Like they, they are – one-offs, uh, you know, it's a thesis that a founder has because they've devoted their life to a certain type of research or because they've worked in an industry and they saw how terrible things are, uh, and they want to fix a, a really difficult problem. Um, and so our, I always say that our view is like, what is, what is the well-reasoned theory of the future that you have? And is it, you know, are, is it able to stand up against people just picking away at it, sp- specifically at the early stages? And for me, that can be in, been, you know, any, any industry. I, I tend to like highly regulated industries because I do think there's, there's market definition. Inefficiencies there. But but pretty you know, anyone who has a well-reasoned theory of the future, and as long as their narrative matches up with their life experience and why they're going after it, that's what matters to me most.
2: By the way, one thing I'd say, you know, thinking about what Catherine was saying, the these companies take generally a little bit longer to build. They have more capital requirements and needs, they have additional layers of complexity, whether tech, regulatory, or otherwise. It means that when you become an investor in these companies, you're signing up for a longer period of time and probably more pain than you <laughs> would in, in some other places. So, it, it, one, it's obviously not for everyone. But second, I think it's also a function of the background of the investors and what motivates them, right? So, you you probably won't see the typical management consultant, investment banker turned VC that sort of thinks of it as a finance function. Not that any VC really thinks of it as a finance function, but still, you know, those who are like, doing all kinds of, you know, metrics analyses on how to dissect the SaaS metrics, and so on, I, I think you will find those kinds of investors just less motivated with deep tech by deep tech. But investors who come in, I mean, obviously, people who've been entrepreneurs in related spaces, who are technologists in the past, to be honest, People who are coming out of journalism and media who have a view into the world, just media broadly, not just journalism, uh, who are seeing how society is changing, how people are changing, how their lives are affected by technology and what good it can do or what bad it can do when misused. I think those are the kinds of people who look at these sort of bigger overarching problems in technology and, and society and and find, find it in themselves to take on that pain, of building out deep tech companies. Yeah. Uh, there are easier ways to make money.
1: Absolutely. It's so funny. We we were talking about this earlier, but I've been spending a lot of time in Washington and trying to explain how venture capital works to people in policy or people in the military or people who, you know, when they think of technology, they think of deep tech. Like -hmm. the defense department thinks of robotics, they think of AI, like they think of the hardest problems. And I I always joke, I'm like, what is one of the best AI companies to come out of the last generation of startups? It's Stitch Fix. Um, And, you know, it's a company that if they mess up, if the algorithm messes up, no one is going to die if they don't get their fix. But in the, in the places where we invest, whether it's autonomous vehicles, if it's defense, aerospace, like, it is actually sometimes a matter of life and death. And so, it does add this layer of complexity to you know what what are you doing as investors, how are you thinking about the investment, but also just the 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 pain points of of building the company. I mean we're we're investors in, in therapeutics companies as well, where people are literally trying to cure cancer. Yeah. So those are you know additional layers of difficulty that come in when you're thinking about how to evaluate these investments, but also how to build lasting companies. I
2: think that intersection of people and machines or technology in society is a really important one. And it is one that deep tech entrepreneurs from day one have to take very seriously, uh, have to have more nuanced point of views on, and, uh, and their boards and their investors have to be really thoughtful about. I wouldn't say that, you know, look, deep tech has its own issues. Companies that maybe, you know, um, building technology that can be manipulated to do bad in the world sometimes don't Put in enough effort as they should into thinking about those those matters, but I think that would be uh, more of an anomaly than than you know common. Uh, I think I find deep tech entrepreneurs who think about these problems take these things more seriously. It impacts their business models. It impacts the particular paths and roadmaps they take in their technology development. Uh, it also impacts where they choose to do business and who they choose to do business with. These are all important decisions that. Often, when you're building, you know, something that's a generic consumer technology company, you don't think about until much later. You don't have to think about it day one.
0: Yeah, let's uh, let's dive into some of these subsectors. Let's let's start with in defense because we spent a lot of time there recently. For VCs and entrepreneurs who are curious about the space, want to invest more or build something in it, where is the white space, or what should they know that they probably don't know, or what what can you educate our audience there?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the further I went down the defense rabbit hole, the more You know, upset I became with kind of the existing market and how it functions. So I believe it was 1994 when um, Lockheed Corporation merged with Martin Marietta to become the largest defense contractor. And now we have five big defense contractors, which I believe get somewhere between 30 and 40% of all US contracts Mm -hmm. for defense. Um, These are companies that have not invested in research and development. I like to compare it to the pharma industry where we both have some background as well Pharma, a lot of R and D has been spun off to venture back companies. Where you can, you know, watch companies build something that's really important and strategic for a pharmaceutical company, get through phase one or phase two trials, um, and ultimately get acquired. And, you know, it's, it's a good outcome for everyone involved. And you're actually working on a specific need, um, that pharmaceutical companies need. In defense, it was just, let's get profitable companies. Let's acquire other profitable companies with contracts. Don't necessarily have any sort of technical ability. And now you have these very, very large, uh, prime contractors that don't have, uh, AI capabilities. They don't have uh, the types of capabilities that are needed for for defense today, and there really isn't an entry point for for companies, or wasn't an entry point for for venture back uh, companies uh, for a long time until about 2015, when uh, former Secretary of Defense Ash Carter under President Obama, said, we have to have access to the best technology in Silicon Valley. We have to get them working on these strategic AI problems. And so we created a new contracting vehicle called Other Transaction Authorities that allowed for, for early-stage companies um, to, to be able to work with the Department of Defense within 30 or 60 days. Uh, but it, it also raised the question of, you know, now that you have all these great companies that are startups that are on the bleeding edge of the type of technologies they need, how are you going to give them contracts? And it's created um, a lot of questions within the Department of Defense and and a lot of questions about how the DOD has been uh, procuring software for the last 30 years. Um, So it's an interesting time. I think that there's been a sea change in how Washington is viewing technology and and particularly startup technology and how they have to work with it. Uh, But in the next few years, we're definitely going to see whether or not uh, companies are able to to scale the way that the big five have been able to scale.
0: And, And where do you see the white space in defense for entrepreneurs who are thinking of building companies there? What's still unsolved? What's what's still really hard or or, or doable? What or, or do you advise?
1: So, uh, Bilal and I are both investors in a, in a company called Andrel. And what's interesting about what Andrel is doing is that they're using computer vision for perimeter security products, but ultimately they are merging hardware and software. And that's something that the Defense Department has not seen. Defense Department is very very good at acquiring tanks, very good at you know putting out requirements and saying we need this type of technology, and then buying buying the box. But companies being able to merge the two, I think we're seeing this across industrials, we're seeing it across legacy industries, but the Defense Department needs more of that. And so that's an area where I think uh, because the cost of sensor technology has come down the cost curve so quickly, thanks in, in part to investment in autonomous vehicles, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of companies that can become very good systems integrators that can build hardware technology with off-the-shelf parts and, and ultimately merge that with software innovation and particularly AI.
2: So the military industry, uh, the military industrial complex, so to say, with these five big contractors and others was set up in post-Second World War for, uh, for the needs of that time. We needed to be able to move quickly and we needed to be able to produce, you know, weapons and tanks and, you know, and so on. So we set up an industry a certain way. Over time, that industry turned into a low margin business that we thought was good for the country because we weren't paying them very well, very well. we kind of turned them into utilities, like electric utilities, their margins are capped, they are near monopolies, if not, you know, monopolies. And what we saw was very predictable. In just like electric utilities, innovation died. And they were not paid for innovation, they were paid to keep lights on, and in some ways, you know, they've been making the same tanks and bombs and missiles that they've been making for a long time. And lots of our money went into putting butts in seats. So, you, you know, the incentives you put in place is and how you reward people is what drives um, action. So, that's what we did. Now, over the last, you know, 20 years, the technology industry has seen some pretty rapid and pretty dramatic developments in what is now accessible and available. From um, availability of sensors, you know, first we people dubbed it the peace dividend of the cell phone wars when you know GPS systems became very cheap, and 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 so on. And then you have now what's coming is the peace dividend of the autonomous car wars. So the lidars and radars and so on, and GPU computers going to become cheap. So. That's one area of innovation that happened. The second area of innovation with the cloud connectivity and and compute uh, that became available. And the third was, you know, big data analytics and autonomous systems and AI machine learning that became available. You put all three together, and we've seen some amazing companies get created. You know, Oculus was possible because you could put sensors on on, on the headpieces to be able to track human movements at pretty high fidelity. And if you could do that, then you wouldn't have this dizzying effect. Uh, and the same thing can be, you know, said about a lot of, you know, drones are now possible for commercial filming and so on because they have tons of sensors to be able to stabilize them and, and take movie action photos and videos at the cost that you and I can purchase at a Best Buy. All that innovation, you know, from semiconductor chips to sensors to uh, computing infrastructures to obviously machine learning AI type systems has not been available to the military. And military is now starting to realize that we have a problem. But, you know, they're realizing that while they're in active situations around the world, you know, having cyber warfare and preparing for kinetic warfare in different parts of the world that is no longer going to be about feet on the ground, but autonomous systems uh, and so on. Now they're turning to Silicon Valley where that technology is and saying, how do we get access to that? And I think, you know, we have to lay down the roads, so to say, for those conversations to take place and for that technology transfer and, and and partnership to take place. And there's a lot of work to be done there, not only on the technology, but also on the processes. It's basically 70-year history of how technology was developed, uh, sold, and implemented in the field that is completely runs counter to how, you know, we've done so in Silicon Valley. And all of that has to be sort of changed. And I think there's tons of opportunity because, you know, military needs it. It's not something that they just like to have. I think they absolutely need to have for national security purposes. You know, just like Catherine was saying earlier, uh, you know, regulatory barriers sort of indicate to you that there's a very large market and not many people will go after it. And if you can crack that nut, then there's a lot of opportunity. Defense represents something similar. It's a very large opportunity. Not everybody will go after it. It's not trivial. It's not easy. But if you can crack that nut, it's going to be, you know, tremendous venture outcomes, but also great for the country and our national security. Talking
0: about regulated industries, and when I think about regulated industries, I think regulations often help incumbents. Uh, and so if you look at the next five years, and feel free to push back on that, five years, 10 years out, I'm curious what separates the fields or the subfields that are going to have major startup explosion versus the ones that are going to be sort of like they are today, continued, dominated by by incumbents, and, and what are some examples of ones that might be in, in either camp?
2: So we've been talking about defense right now right and and one of the topics that comes up a lot is u s versus China, and what are the areas where China can move faster and you know has an advantage over us? you know sure, we have a leg up right now because we've had you know more technology development over the last twenty years we've had uh, you know better access to education and research and research grants and financing and so on uh, and sort of sitting on top of you know other shoulders that have done great work in the past. that said there's a lot of places where we are limited now where the Chinese are not. So if you think about biotech research, if you think about, you know, we're recently looking at an organ development research company, right? You have huge (laughs) hurdles here that takes years to overcome. And in China, that may not be the case. Now, there's ethical lines here that you have to be very careful about. But if you put that aside for a second and not that any venture capitalist or any entrepreneur wants to in the U.S., but certainly if you have to overcome that, then that's a problem. That takes time, and you have to figure out how to do that and how to do that uh, the right way. Similarly, if you think about the privacy issues in the U.S., you know, we're dealing with that. The tech industry is dealing with that every day now. um, Some of those privacy concerns are much less. Now, you know, when you start thinking about privacy in the context of my Facebook messages or my email that, you know, Catherine might be able to get access to, that's very different than if you're talking about, look, you have terrorists that could be roaming around the streets How do you identify them? How do you find them? How do you track them? And how do you know, how do you catch them before they do a nefarious activity versus post-mortem in the hindsight? You know, you would have to have society level conversations around what does privacy really mean and how do you go after them? What are the ethics and the new regulations or the new ethical guidelines that need to be put in place to protect, you know, citizens' privacy and freedoms, which is the important values we care about, and at the same time, making sure that we don't have bombs blowing up at concerts or guns being taken into schools and, you know, shooting 20 to 30 children at a time. These are all issues where I have to argue that as much as it's a technology problem, I think other countries recognize (laughs) that as a technology problem as well. But this is also one which is a society ethics and, you know, sort of, you know, our our conversations as a community problem that we need to have. And the discussion that Defense Department uh, and other branches of the government is having with technology companies as ugly as it looks right now, it's a really important one to have because otherwise we just won't find an answer.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think one of the big problems across government, not just defense, is that the government has had a really hard time recruiting this type of software talent across agencies. And they're also having a hard time recruiting the types of people who understand what's like the pace of technology, the acceleration of technology, and how they can keep up with it. And so when I'm looking at what companies are going to be able to work uh, within regulated sectors, a lot of it comes down to, like, how is the three-letter agency looking at technology? Are they skeptical? And there's some agencies that are much more forward-thinking. I actually argue that the FCC has been a little bit more forward-thinking about uh, you know, commercialization in space. Um, FDA has been very forward-thinking about how simulation can play into the approval process, you know, what types of drugs should we fast-track. Uh, there, there's been a lot of, I think, changes around the edges of regulatory processes that could be very good for companies, but it sometimes comes down to people recognizing there's a massive problem and that the pace of acceleration in the real commercial world is not being kept up with by the people writing white papers in Washington. And that's across defense, it's across FDA, it's FCC. And there's there's real panic because, you know, I I love pointing to this uh, this example, but even in government services, it has taken teams of like 10 people. A a good example is a a company called Propel um, that helps millions of Americans get access to SNAP benefits. You're a group of 10 people that was able to build an app that works better than the federal government in terms of helping people manage their resources for a very important civic service. So I, I think when you see that happen in real time in maybe one or two years, uh, you know, and, and, and that government can't actually solve a lot of these problems, it's forcing a lot of agencies to wake up and say, how can we partner with, with private
0: sector?
2: It's also I, I would also say, uh, you know, Catherine referred to earlier solving hardware-software problems. So while there are certain class of problems that can be solved with just software, you know, these days, machine learning AI is everywhere, and people think about, you know, I'm an AI company, or we are an AI company. A lot of things require you to solve hardware software problems, uh, and the hardware here could mean mechanical, electrical hardware, or it could be biological, or so on. You know, we also have a world where the government sort of was okay outsourcing a lot of it to private industry, and the private industry was out, was okay outsourcing a bunch of our uh, supply chain to outside the country. And now when these are starting to become national security issues, we're finding ourselves sort of, you know, sitting there with our pants down by our knees, right? Like we, we don't have the supply chains available. We are reliant on external suppliers. There's a trust issue with some of those suppliers. Uh, so the problems get compounded not only in its technical complexity and regulatory complexity, but suddenly you also have a trust deficit in the supply chain that you built over the last 30, 40 years to, to feed this beast. So, you know, you have to solve that problem as well. Now, we're listing out all the problems, but to be honest, whenever you have these very large markets that have a lot of problems is exactly where determined entrepreneurs go and find opportunities because not many other people will. And if they're able to crack that nut, uh, they would have a highly advantageous uh, position years down the road.
0: What are the problems that if you solve those problems, lots of other problems will, will be solved? Like the, the most highest leverage problems that, that one can solve? I'll propose one idea out there. Uh, what do you guys think about charter cities? Could you ever, or sort of uh, markets for governance or competitive governance? Could you see yourself backing charter cities?
2: Interesting. Yes, no. I'm not interested in backing experiments. Just like I'm not interested in backing some great technology development because they got an SBIR grant because this should This little technology should exist. Why not? It's a great science that should just come to reality. I'm interested in backing businesses that are scalable. Either they affect, you know, a billion people or proverbially billion-dollar companies or generate a lot of jobs or solve a problem that many of us face. So, you know, when companies come to me and they tell us, you know, I'm looking at what you just said, and I said, you know, they come to us and they say, you know, oh, we got, you know, permit to do this in Dubai or Singapore or Hong Kong. Uh, because either they're, you know, different governing mechanisms or you just know the right person and the sheikh says yes, then it's a good to go. that doesn't change anything about our decision making. That actually doesn't play in as some great positive well, wow, Dubai wants to do this, so great. Because what are you gonna do afterwards? You gotta build something that you can replicate. You know, the whole idea of venture capital has been that you make the investment up front to develop the solution that you can then roll out and then as it scales your cost of everything goes down, you know, not just the cost of production, but your cost of distribution, your cost of operation, and, you know, everything becomes cheaper and better, or in some ways, your margin essentially increases as a function of scale. And I think we're looking for solutions like that. So, you know, a big problem that many of our companies face right now is, you know, a dependency on Asian supply chains. Now, it's not a problem if we are in a healthy, happy place where you know Asia supply chain is just one flight away, and so on. But when you're in an environment where you know you have suppliers shutting down supply because the chip is getting you know um, shut down for sale in the U.S., when you have and you know we're having that, you know you can have life saving equipment that cannot fly find certain chips right now because they're not available, or if you have tariffs that suddenly could add. 10 to 30% uh, on your cost that the market is not able to readily absorb, that could be a death blow to companies. So I think, you know, those are important things. The third thing I'd say, you know, what can we radically solve? I, I actually think we have a talent problem, right? Uh, I remember starting my company 2003, okay? MIT Alarm starts a company, you know, wants to hire, you know, 20, 30 people. I mean, that's the plan. Uh, starts looking around, and just notices that, you know, 80% plus of the applicants are immigrants for senior scientist roles. You know, I'm looking for chemists and chemical engineers and manufacturing engineers. And I that's interesting. And I really question myself, am I just biased as an immigrant that I'm just, you know, choosing from pools or looking into pools where more immigrants are? And then I realized that that's what our universities are producing right now. So if you look at the hard sciences, you know, everything from computer science, but especially if you look at mechanical, electrical, chemical, biological engineering fields, a lot of those areas are, um, you know, being studied by immigrants. Many of those are not U.S. citizens, and we don't keep them here. We don't create the right incentives for them to stay here. You know, we have had several companies that have had to let go of people they recruited and hired because they wouldn't get the right visa or they wouldn't get an ability to stay here. That, I think, is a big problem. Now, it doesn't feel like a, such a pressing problem to everybody right now. And especially with all the immigration debate, broadly speaking, at our borders and stuff. But if you think over the long arc of history, this is a massive problem. Because if the talent goes away, you're basically screwed. You know, Russia has built cities that they have poured billions into to try and build, you know, the Silicon Valley of Russia. And they have completely failed. I mean, you know, I can't even tell you what cities there are. But they have spent a lot of money trying to do this. You know, we have routinely seen people coming in from Middle East and Indonesia and Malaysia and Hong Kong and Singapore. How can we bring the Silicon Valley model to our countries? But if the talent is not there, the talent wants to leave, you can't do that. And I think that is something we should really be concerned about. Of course, it's more than immigration policy; There's a whole bunch of other things go into it. But certainly, that is a critical uh, problem that at least I'm very sensitive to.
1: And going back to the, the charter cities question, like, I always think it's nice to fantasize about safe spaces for innovation or like what could we do if there was no regulation? But ultimately the the companies that we invest in and the people we look for are not afraid of regulation. Like they're not afraid of the actual real world constraints of the problem. And that's something that I think ultimately the best entrepreneurs will always be able to work with Washington. They'll always be able to to kind of make their arguments heard in that forum and we need more of that. You know, Silicon Valley, I think, sometimes likes to shy away from interacting with Washington, and the last 10 years have shown us that that's not always the best thing. And so now having people that are willing to, to interface with these hard challenges and talk about them with regulators, I think that's what we need more of.
0: Yeah. Well, let's get get deeper into, into what has Silicon Valley done wrong as, as it relates to Washington, or, or why is there sort of – you mentioned before the podcast there's sort of a battle on the left and the right. Against tech capitalism, but perhaps.
1: Yeah. So, so it's interesting because I actually, I, I've been debating this a lot. I don't think the tech lash is a real problem from Americans. Like, I actually don't think that my mother in Northern Florida cares at all about what's happening in Silicon Valley. So is it she just must, journalists
0: or just DC? Or? I,
1: I think it's predominantly regulators and predominantly the media. And I do think we have this sort of narrative that our best days are behind us. And I, I, I felt it so palpably at the anniversary of the, of the moon landing. That, that, you know, we choose to go to the moon. Like, would we say that now? Would we actually say those words? Like, would we actually choose it? I don't know that we would as a country, and I don't know that our elites would choose it. And so I think that's a big problem. Like, I actually think that's the, the limiting force is that the people who are crafting the narratives about this are very anti-technology. I think most Americans love Amazon. They love if they have to give up a tiny bit of their privacy to get their toilet paper delivered day of, they're very happy about that. And they vote with their pocketbooks. So I think the big problem is getting the leaders of Silicon Valley who have have not interfaced with Washington and who have sort of shied away from these problems for the last 10 years to talk about this with the people who are leading the tech clash and to have those conversations. And I, I actually think they have more in common than they think they do. Um, and, and I'm saying this as someone who, you know, worked at a dying newspaper, lived in Washington for 10 yeah. years, probably held some of those beliefs until I came out here and saw the light. Yeah. Uh, but I do think that there's, you know, there's truth on both sides and bringing people together more is probably what we need now versus sort of separating ourselves and, and not talking about the difficult issues.
0: Would you serve as vice president for Andrew Yang? <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: no, I haven't gotten that call.
2: I'm still trying um, to figure out why Andrew <laughs> Yang is running for president. <laughs> Uh, But I know a lot of my tech friends who support him. I think, you know, I want to follow up what Catherine was saying. And I think there is a public leadership problem, especially in tech companies and in the military. Two sectors of our economy that are now have been and are very, very large, but almost feel like they don't have a duty to do public leadership. By leadership, I mean going out there, speaking and talking and convincing and telling people what they do and why they do. It's almost assumed, taken for granted. You know, our military leadership assumes that we all have a nationalistic fervor, uh, you know, we, we, we believe and, you know, we obviously, you know, b- believe in the sacrifice that the military gives and the lives that are put on the line to defend our freedoms. Yes, but there's a lot of people who are growing up who have not seen war, definitely not been exposed to it personally. That's a real issue. So the assumption that they might have that everybody thinks military only does good may or may not be true. Certainly not when military and the politics become so intermingled as it seems to be, Uh, may or may not be true, but it seems to be in the D.C. right now. That's the real issue. So they have to come out and they have to do public speaking and they have to go town to town and they have to talk and they have to, you know, find ways to explain to people what are we doing and why. Why are we using drones and accept mistakes when they are made? and hold ourselves accountable and 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 make the tough decisions when they have to when they have to be made and don't assume that people are just going to let everything go you know police used to be like that they're now facing you know because of the public scrutiny uh, and because of our cameras are there our cameras are not there inside dod offices when the decisions are getting made we're getting more exposure to police making bad decisions that they're being held accountable. That doesn't mean police shouldn't exist. That doesn't mean police everywhere is out there to kill people, or especially minorities. But they have to be accountable and they have to do things better. I think military will need to do the same. I think technology needs to do the same. You know, the idea of a, you know, nerdy, geeky guy who uh, doesn't have to confront society and can shout at the 10 people sitting around the table and, you know, F this, F that, and that's sort of a hallmark of a great leader. That's not okay anymore. It was fine when this was a small boutique industry, maybe, but it's not okay when, you know, 3 billion people around the world are using your website. And it's not okay when, you know, people are using your site to either, you know, drive hate, or drive warfare, or drive other kinds of, you know, rebellions inside their societies. I mean, you have to be out there talking about who do you stand for? What do you stand for? Why are you doing what you're doing? What judgments and decisions you're making? Uh, and what hangs in balance? And I think that is something that we haven't expected of people, especially in these two two communities, mm-hmm. military and technology. And I think both sides are very uncomfortable playing that role. Yeah, I can tell you VCs who are just a very small part of technology. They're very uncomfortable playing that role. Very few of them do. It's sort of, yep. if I raise my arm, I might, get all the attention, you know, towards me. And that may be the worst thing that can happen to a VC. To Sometimes, you know, it's, it's, I think that will change over the next 10, 15 years, especially as, you know, I mean, there are VCs who are billionaires, right? I mean, it's, you know, when, when Bernie says there should be no billionaires, <laughs> you know, he's also talking about VCs. As much as we, as much as we talk about we're bringing innovation and look at the jobs we've created and, you know, we pay full taxes and whatever, right? That's irrelevant. We're a part of society that is now really large, really big, and impacts a lot of people's lives. And we have to be able to stand up and talk about what we do, what we don't do. We know we will make mistakes. And we'll just have to, you know, adjust and learn and, and, you know, be held accountable.
0: I want to zoom out for a sec. We've been talking about the presence of some of these subsectors of deep tech. Why don't we give a brief sort of historical overview of how deep tech has evolved? Or been seen uh, over time by, by the venture community? Uh, like, for example, are there waves of deep tech and which wave are we in now? How would you sort of give a brief historical survey?
2: So I'll give a very high level. I mean, this is not, there's academic work done on this, right? So I won't give you that obviously, the history of venture capital goes back, and especially in Silicon Valley and Boston, the two early centers goes back to the DARPA and military funding research for radio research and so on. And there's a lot of work that's been done in in that space that people have written about on how all these innovations came about, internet came about, because military was funding communications. But, you know, there are two things that, you know, I'll, I'll talk about. One is the Half-Life of Technology Intimacy, which is happening, and I think it's it's pretty interesting to track it that way, right? So you have my, my partner, Josh Wolf, talks about it quite a bit. Uh, we started with computers that were the size of this room and used to stand inside a room right? And that was, you know, you being inside technology. And then it went to a desktop sitting in front of you, laptop on your lap to a phone that's in my pocket right next to my skin, and then a watch or earbuds that are literally attached to my body, right? And now we have brain computer interfaces that are literally trying to read, you know, what you're thinking and what your synapses and what your neurons are doing. So if you think of it through that lens, you can start thinking about it. Less of a, oh, we had this new invention called, you know, integrated chip or integrated circuit or whatever, but think of it more as, you know, how humans and technology have evolved together and, 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 and what is our relationship with technology? So that's one interesting angle. The second thing I would give you is very limited to my own experience, right? So I've been, um, in this technology space for, you know, 20 years or so. And, you know, there have been waves. So, you know, uh, let's go back to late 90s, and of course, there was the internet wave, right? And it's the biggest thing that we could argue, you know, has changed our lives in many ways, right? That said, you know, if you think about our world, what has it really changed? It's changed the flow of information, whether how you and I communicate with each other, we can send email now instead of sending letters, or we can read newsletters or Twitter instead of newspapers, or commerce, you know, eBay and Amazon and Stitch Fix and all those things. But the rest of the world goes about things the same way. You know, the cars are practically made the same way they were made 30 years ago. They're bought and sold the same way that they were, you know, who goes to Ford.com? Do you go hang out at Ford.com to chat, chat, chat with people there? No, right? So lots of our society hasn't changed. So the bigger things in our society have not moved. And I think that is happening now. So when Catherine referred to earlier, large industries that haven't been touched by society, there are those very large industries that are now getting affected by society, and they see it. Either they adopt uh, technology, they partner with companies, acquire companies, or whatever. GM acquired Cruise very early on in its life, as an example, Uh, and there are many other examples, Ford, Argo, and many others. Uh, Either they do that, or they turn around, and the next thing they know, they have a company like Tesla that is about the same market cap as them, and you know dominating at least the technology space in the automotive uh, industry so i i i feel that you know there've been waves diversity biotech movement that, you know, sort of subsided for a while, then there was the, you know, the nanotech movement, and then there was the clean tech movement. And, you know, Catherine and I were talking earlier, all the, you know, biotech investors became biofuel investors, and that was terrible for a while. Uh, All the semiconductor investors, when semiconductors were not was not very hot, they became solar investors, and that didn't quite go very well. But then eventually all of that turned into new industries. So now semiconductor is back again, one of the hottest spaces to invest in. Biotech is, again, interesting space. Space, robotics, drones, autonomous systems has become hot. Uh, these things these things go through their cycles. I, I would be, you know, by the time, you know, we are talking about it on this podcast, probably the space has already moved on, <laughs> right? <laughs> I think the important thing is to go back to the fundamentals that instead of chasing what spaces are hot, the idea should go back to what is an important problem to be solved and can you solve that while creating a protection for your business around some kind of a moat around that business so that you get to extract an economic rent by having solved that problem if an outright patent does that doesn't give that to you because that was you know state mandated monopoly if you can if you cannot get that kind of a monopoly you have to create some other way of having a monopoly like situation and if you do that good comes out of it both financial but also for the society
1: and just to add to that i think you know we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about interest rates like historically low interest rates since 2008 have propped up deep tech in many ways and been very great for deep tech companies um, and even just, uh, you know, we were, we've been talking a lot about just the amount of dollars that are going into autonomous vehicles, going into component parts. That has been incredible for buyers that are going to last, even if interest rates change. You know, even if capital leaves Silicon Valley, there's always going to be government buyers. There's always going to be the need for this kind of technology. And so, I, I again going back to what Bilal said about it always comes in cycles, but it's it's definitely tied to to global markets.
2: There's a lot of enthusiasm for things that in Silicon Valley that may or may not fit the venture model. And we forget our lessons pretty quickly. You know, the entire clean tech debacle was less than 10 years ago. uh, ago. And, you know, there were VCs talking, you know, crying on stage and talking about trillion dollar industries and the world is changing. And this is the biggest opportunity for investments since, you know, time immemorial. And, And, you know, and that didn't end that well. And the reason was that people didn't pay attention to the fundamentals. And just in the last week, you know, with this whole WeWork debacle, people have started to notice there's these things called gross margins or discounted cash flows and free cash flows, you know.
1: Business school has started to be a little bit more appealing. I've noticed that on Twitter. I'm like, that's shocking. Who would have ever thought that?
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really fascinating to me that there are there are many investors who could not tell you how to calculate DCF. It's shocking as it might be, but they've never had to. Why should you expect them to? You know, you're supposed to go in, you're supposed to find the next person leaving Uber M3 team or Google, blah, 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 right? And they're having this big idea and Sequoia and Andres and Horowitz are already, you know, talking to them. So this must be something interesting. And the next thing you know, the round gets done. They show a little bit of movement and then a second round gets done before the first round, you know, has even been celebrated with a closing dinner, Right. That's the world we've lived in for the last few years. I think those kinds of things are not going to end well, but that's okay. That's you know the the entrepreneurs who are heads down building companies are going to continue to build. They're going to use that to their advantage. They're going to raise capital at the lowest cost of capital. They're going to hire great people who are leaving these companies to come in and 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 do something that's world changing rather than you know keep optimizing search engine for Google. And uh, and I think we're all going to be Good coming out of this. Some people will lose their shirt on it, but that's okay. I mean, that's the business we are in. Some people will lose their shirt on it because they're taking risks that they should not be taking.
0: Yeah. And if the markets change in a pretty drastic way, are there subsectors that are particularly sort of immune or, or will be strong or particularly fragile?
2: Companies that don't have customers and don't expect to have customers for another few years but their idea is that we can raise another three rounds of financing with interim milestones. I think those are the ones that I'm not suggesting that they're terrible companies. I'm just suggesting those are the kinds of companies that are gonna have a really hard time. Very quickly, people will learn to find customers for some aspect of their technology that may be applicable today versus the full stack solution that they may be building for a 2025 deployment.
1: I mean, this is why when we talk about like what are we looking for in a founder of a deep tech company? I think there's often, oh, well, people get enamored by the technology or they get enamored with how brilliant the technologist is, but you have to be 10 times more commercial and something that's a much more difficult market. And so going back to like, there has to be a business model, even, even if it takes you a few years to, to build the technology, like there has to be a business model from day one. And you have to understand how you're going to make a multi-billion dollar business because it's going to take more capital. It has to be that much bigger.
0: Yeah. Let's say we're doing this podcast uh, seven years from now or 10 years from now. And we're talking about the wave of the last seven years, the last 10 years. What's a prediction you have for how that conversation is different in terms of how deep tech has evolved? Or another way of asking the question is like, what's the clean tech right now? Like, or what's the, or the flip side, what's the, where does the
2: come from? So if it was seven to 10 years out, I want to look back and I want to see a few companies that you you and I can point to, not just as great venture successes, but multi-generational companies that got created that will be there for a while. Amazon is a multi-generational company. Now, who knows how long they will last, but it certainly feels like that, right? They've been around for 20 years and probably will be around for another 10, 20 years. If you look at a lot of deep tech successes, they haven't been of that sort, Right. I mean, you know, what are the big companies we talk about? They're mostly private, right? SpaceX, Palantir are big companies, but they're private. So none of us have a real understanding of their internal financials. They look good because their valuations are high. So hopefully they're good businesses too. Tesla is an example of a public company. But, you know, people can argue me to death that this is like the biggest fraud (laughs) in the public market, my own partner. And I argue with him all the time. But, you know, he's probably right on the financials and I'm probably right on the product. I would love to see a few companies that look like that. So not companies that, you know, GM buys for a billion dollars or a pharmaceutical company buys for six billion dollars, uh, but we never see the product. We never, you know, It. I would love to see standalone public companies that look like platforms for the future. Companies that, you know, um, will spin out other entrepreneurs to build companies, you know, whether they're spinning in companies or otherwise, you know, the Cisco's of the future. Where where will that get created? I would love to see that. You also asked, what are some of the areas where we might see big holes? I worry about the autonomous car space.
0: Hmm.
2: Why is that? I think there's a lot of money going into it. And yes, it's a very large industry, but I think a lot of people are not very thoughtful about the capital intensity of that business and the margin structure of that business at different parts of that business. Um, you don't want to be a tier two supplier, could you cost plus supplier? Uh, do you want to be an OEM? I don't know. Do you want to be a network operator like Uber? Well, Uber's financials don't look very good. But then maybe if they do become robo taxis, then you immediately accrue 60-70% margins that you right now have to pay to driver. Maybe that looks good. So there's a lot of unknown there. I'm sure there will be some big successes. But you know, there's literally billions and billions of dollars have been, you know, these days, the flavor of the day is trucking, right? So there's like five or six trucking companies each raising $100 million. Three years ago, it was cars. Uh, So who knows where this goes. But I think, again, great companies will get created, but there will be creators. I also, you know, worry about some of the industrial automation stuff. Mm -hmm. And not because industrial automation doesn't need to happen, absolutely. But I think there's some macroeconomic issues that need to get Taken into account, Uh, if manufacturing moves out of China and goes to Vietnam or Indonesia, they may not be using the same level of automation that China may have deployed. So, if you're a semiconductor supplier into that industry, or if you're a robotic supplier into that industry, you might see some softening of the demand there, and that could be that could be very large. Uh, China is a very large consumer of automation, so those are some areas as well that I, you know, I'm I'm long. You know, if you ask me, fifty year trend, sure. We're going to see greater automation absolutely across the board. But in that 10-year period, I, I worry when, where, and how some things may not work.
1: I've, learned, I've listened to enough podcasts to know not to make predictions, so I, I will not, not make that mistake. But I think a lot of the companies that we invest in, and personally, my, my area of passion is following this thesis of the privatization of government. Like, I do think going back to what Bilal said about just talent being a huge issue in companies, it's a huge issue in government. And so a lot of the government services, pretty much every major function of government is going to have to be supplemented with private capital and private companies. And we're seeing it already. Um, and it's happening before our eyes. I and mean, I would argue that Uber, in many ways, is taking over the, the function of a, as the city transportation department, um, the way that people are now opting not to give that revenue to cities and to give it to a private company. Um, you see it with security companies, both in defense, but also in you know city security. There's a lot that, I mean, I've argued that Silicon Valley is becoming this sort of like historical shadow capital that we've seen throughout history. And that's happening because technology is accelerating every aspect of life but also because it's just become so appealing to to work in these with you know on really hard problems with a small group of people and then grow that and watch it scale yeah. and that's also because we have very low interest rates and there's a lot of capital to play with so i think that's something where i think you know it's a 30 year history of watching privatization happen and i think that's going to continue and be accelerated with technology but a lot of it is also dependent on you know will government allow that to happen Will regulation come in and forbid that from happening, and will that actually hurt us rather than help us? And then you know are we going to be able to fix the talent problem that exists within government, but also are we going to be able to have enough talent to, to solve these difficult problems in an era where, where capital is cheap so we can actually work?
0: I'm fascinated by that. Paint, paint more of a picture of what the privatization of government looks like. Is it basically taking the biggest areas of spend within government and you know unbundling it to startups will now take for like is it like you know defense, healthcare? what, what uh, how do you
1: yeah i mean i would argue those are the the primary functions of government and that private companies have long done a better job than public companies what's what's sort of happened with these sort of legacy companies that are there now is that they've become monopolistic um, and going back to our our you know argument about the defense department you know if you can only work with five companies as prime contractors and they you know get to tell you that they've spent too much money and that they need more capital in order to finish a project and they're willing to follow whatever you need to spec you're not looking at the best innovation. You're not looking for someone who says, actually, I'm not going to need that amount of capital. I can do it for 10 times cheaper and I can build it in this way, which might not be how you thought it should be built, but it might actually be better for you and it might be better for society and actually function better. So I think that is that is the big question of our time is, you know, we have all of these big infrastructure problems. We have all of these problems that government needs to solve and they have a specific way of solving them and giving contracts and it's not about merit. And if we can figure out how to make it more about merit across different agencies and different departments. I think that's a beautiful thing for Silicon Valley to work on for the next 20, 30 years.
2: I think people used to have a greater degree of faith and trust in large institutions, not just governments. Ford and GM make great cars. There's a belief system like that for 50 years. And, you know, government can run better programs for whatever social security or whatever else it might be or better road you know development you know development works and so on and i think that has changed and it's changed in in many 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 different ways right we don't we no longer think microsoft makes the best software i mean they may in some places and they may not in other places but if you don't trust you know a fast moving tech development company Certainly, that trust also doesn't exist for the large bureaucratic institutions. And that change is allowing people to say, I want this. This is, this is a need that I have, whether it's healthcare, whether it's security, whether it's access to water. I am willing to spend on it You know what I think is fair, make that happen. So we're no longer okay watching ABC and CBS and NBC. We want choice. And we want that, you know, we we, we expect quality and, and whether that comes through private networks or however, we're willing to pay for it, but we need to see that you provide that. And we're willing to choose from what is available to us. And I think that is a big change in industries that used to be very CapEx heavy, that used to, you know, need very large scale to really operate. In fact, you know, Catherine's partner wrote this book, Unscale, right? Or whatever it's called, Unscaling. That there's an entire thesis of that right that that things can that used to be done at scale and considered that it is better to be done at scale might actually be beneficial to be done subscale or at a different level of scale uh, because the supply chains have changed value chains have changed and people's uh, you know choices have changed. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how far we're willing to take it you know i I give you an example I've invested a lot in physical security companies. You know, if you are certainly, if you were living in Baghdad or if you're living in Karachi, you care about your physical security a lot. You know, if you have any amount of money, you, you carry guards with you that are armed. You have, you know, um, bulletproof windshields and cars. But, you know, what about here? Like, will we choose schools based on, you know, where my kids are more protected? I mean, we haven't done that, thankfully. But will that happen? What will I be willing to to pay to have that available? And should that not be considered almost fundamental to me? Like, what am I doing all this for? What am I doing this this job, this work, this podcast and everything if my kids are not going to be safe at their own school, right? And I think that was a question that we didn't ask 10 years ago. We thought the government is doing what it can. And, you know, the police is supposed to take care of it. But now we're realizing that's not going to be enough. So what are we willing to do for it? You know, I've invested in a company, actually, both General Catalyst and Lux, are invested in a company called Evolve. They make systems that detect guns and bombs and prevent terrorists from getting to, you know, where people are congregating. You have, you know, temples in major cities calling them after shooting accident to say, we need these systems now. We're willing to pay. The board of directors and the members of that congregation are willing to pay money. Now, that, is unfortunate that they have to do that. But if you consider that really important to you, you're going to do that. You and I drink water out of plastic bottles. Well, maybe now cans that some will tell. But we do that because we believe that the water coming in our taps is not good enough for us and makes us sick. Now, in a developed world, should that be the case? Should I really be having to bring water in plastic bottle and paying for that water myself? You know, I was talking to my partners this week and I was telling them, you know how they sell you aluminum bottles and then they give you these stations at um, at airports, for example, that you can fill in for free, you bet in a few years that's going to flip on its head. They're going to give you aluminum bottles for free and they're going to charge you per you know gallon of water that you fill from that. Because that's what they're selling you. You're not interested in the bottle itself, you're interested in the water. And if the clean water requires cost that the government is unable to give you uh, clean water, then you're going to have to pay for it. I think this is what I meant, that technology and society... They need to have a new social construct, contract of some sort that to understand what is it that technology is providing and who's going to be the buyer. In the case of defense, we think our military government entity should be defending us and we should be building the technology to supply to them. We don't need militias to go out there and defend us, right? So I am very against people owning guns because, you know, I don't need militias to defend me. I need to trust my government to do that. If that trust is betrayed, or if that trust means that if the if our defense forces are not good enough, then I will have to go find the security elsewhere. There's no difference between me not being not feeling secure inside my mosque or inside my temple, or me not feeling secure inside the U.S. because our military is not strong enough. And I think you know this is where. This is why I meant that the 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 technology uh, companies broadly speaking and government military and you know are our, our, our incumbent institutions need to have this conversation because there's really' it's a societal conversation around what do we expect off of each other and what do we think is acceptable you know and what we consider to be a right and and those things that we consider to be a right we're going to be willing to pay for it and I think those are markets that people will go after if the government doesn 't do it
0: the, uh, the book Hedge by Nicholas Collin. I don't know if you've come across it, but yeah, it, it talks about how, yeah, the next social contract, um, private companies are going to serve a lot of the services that governments used to serve, basically what you guys have been talking about here.
1: I, I know we, we, we went down some rabbit holes. So I want to make clear I'm optimistic like I'm actually optimistic that government and Silicon Valley are going to work together like I think it's hard and I think but we're moving in the right directions and you know one of the things that Bilal and I were talking about is just how often we meet with people from the defense department or from different agencies and they come out here genuinely curious like genuinely like how do we work together and I think it you know it takes more of us coming together in good faith and saying like we don't know how Washington works you don't know how we work. Let's sit down and have a conversation and talk about our priorities and see how things can work together. But that was not happening 5, 10 years ago and it's happening now. So I'm optimistic that we're going to fix this problem. It's going to be hard, but but it's but it's definitely something that I think is fixable.
2: I also, you know, love seeing those Bill Gates uh, newsletters that talk about, you know, all the good that's happening in the world and, you know, we think of you know we went down the, the discussion of deep tech broadly and robotics and automation and working with the government or military or whatever, even if you do none of that, right Even if you're working on technology that is helping finds bring sanitation to poor countries, that's technology and it's needed. It needs to be developed at an affordable price point that, that can save millions of lives. And I think we're living in a time where innovations across multiple sectors not just technology, but in business models and regulations and otherwise and governing systems are leading to opportunities that did not exist before to solve really important problems in the world. What in my world of you know entrepreneurship and startups, what's most interesting to me is that, you know, we've created a lot of wealth for the technologists in the last 20 years. There's a lot of people walking around us in San Francisco who are all millionaires and multimillionaires, and they are all—not uh, all, but many of them—are raising their head and saying, "Okay, what am I doing next?" Right. So I made my money doing something, something for some technology company, Facebook, Google, Uber, whatever. Right. But what's next? Not—not not any different from Elon Musk, you know, from payment company going on saying, "You know, I'm going to." an autonomous car company or i'm going to build an electric car company or i'm going to build a solar company or a space company there's many many such people walking around so they're bringing a lot of knowledge capabilities know-how resources to bear to solve interesting problems which is one of the reasons why you're seeing you know people uh you know building literally flying cars and and i think that's a real reason to be optimistic because sure many of them won't work many solutions won't work but that's the business we're in You're in the business of having at least half of those things go to zero. But the important thing is that you have to um, take chances and you have to use all the resources available to you uh, and then some to make these problems happen. And the more resourceful you are, the chances of your success go up. And we're seeing more resourceful entrepreneurs enter the deep tech space. We're not just seeing the missionaries who were starved and didn't know how to find the right resources and were relying on government grants and SBIR programs and this and that. But we're seeing people who are able to either collect resources and or change the system to be able to open up resources uh, and go after big problems. And, you know, to be honest, even more so than the non-deep tech spaces, VCs and investors like us, you know, have a real role to play in sort of, you know, creating a narrative to invite more of those people to come in that this is a really interesting space this, this deep tech what we call deep tech and it's very rewarding not just financially but otherwise but most importantly there are amazing people who are working in this space you know and and that's the one thing that's most exciting about my job which is you know the kind of people you interact with just blows you away you know and 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 the kind of ambitions they have and the kind of things that they're capable of doing really surprise you so every you know i've been doing this for 12 years and every single year you almost feel like, you know, oh man, I was really playing with the kids before. This is like the next, the next group coming in is so much more amazing than the previous one. And that's amazing. And when that changes, that's when the fat lady truly stops thinking. That. <laughs> that when, when you start saying, yeah, last year's entrepreneurs that I saw last year was so much better than what I'm seeing now. And when it's time to look elsewhere.
0: Yeah. I think it's a great place to close. My guests today have been Catherine Boyle of General Catalyst and Bilal Zaberi of Lux Capital. But Bilal, uh, Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks. Yeah.